I now have the great pleasure of handing things over to uh, Helena Gaspard. She is the Director of Governance and Institutions at the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy. Um, uh, Helena and her team were a fantastic partner of ours uh, for our recovery project. Um, and uh, she has an excellent, excellent, excellent response panel, particularly given the conversation that we just had a chance to tune into. I, I think there's a lot that we can dig into there. Um, I see Craig nodding. I know there was a lot in there that uh, that we can get to. Um, uh, Jacob, I know Talis has done some work recently on uh, rural and remote communities, and there's in terms of infrastructure and underserved communities, there's a lot to be done there. So um, I am I, I'm just going to quickly do around the horn here. So as I mentioned, Helena Gaspard is going to be our moderator for the next 40, 45 minutes or so. Uh, Craig Stewart, he is the Vice President of uh, Federal Affairs at the Insurance Bureau of Canada. Uh, Carol Saab is the CEO of the uh, Federation of Canadian Municipalities. And Jacob Glick is the Vice President of Public Policy at TELUS. Uh, hello to you all. I'm going to stay on. I'm going to work with our chat to um, uh, keep the questions going. And Helena, I'll hand it over to you. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Alex. And it's always a pleasure to collaborate with our friends at Canada 2020. As Alex said, this is really a fantastic panel with a great set of perspectives that I think will help us to unpack a lot of the operational considerations when it comes to infrastructure, what it means to actually get the infrastructure spend right. Um, and certainly beyond exclusively economic returns or employment, we have the opportunities in this panel to talk about inclusivity, sustainability, about measuring, tracking, and really how to get the most out of the these infrastructure um, investments. So given our time, um, let's get right into it. Um, as Alex mentioned, we just heard from the minister and from Professor Bordoff at Columbia. Um, they had a lot to say, you know, about the importance of having infrastructure investments do double, triple duty, but also of aligning infrastructure investments, not just for the short term, not just for an immediate return, but ensuring that it's set up from a much longer term perspective, both from the perspectives of hard infrastructure, roads, rail, but also soft infrastructure structure, even getting into R&D. And so, Carol, I was hoping you would kick us off. And, and what um, can you say about the current context? So in the discussion today, I thought um, each of our panelists will take a minute or two, uh, help us understand the current context. And, and in the Canadian context, um, uh, more specifically, uh, feel free to react to the uh, fiscal and economic statement that was just released um, yesterday. So Carol, over to you for, for a few starting words on what, uh, what we think cities need, what cities are saying at this particular time. Hey, thank you very much, Elena. And I'll uh, also start by thanking Canada 2020 for, for having me and FCM's perspective at, uh, at this panel today. Um, and I'll also just begin by acknowledging that I'm coming to you from Ottawa, which is the traditional uh, and unceded territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg people. Um, well, listen, I, I think that was a great uh, conversation that we just saw and really highlighted some, some real thematics that are resonant for us in the Canadian context. Uh, yeah, I'll start by the urgency uh, piece of this and, and uh, move on on very quickly to how, how uh, the scale of transformation and the scale of the challenge and, uh, and the opportunity as well and our need to match our ambition uh, to, to that scale uh, going forward as well. And then, of course, you saw a thematic there as well, incredibly resonant for us to really center a recovery effort, um, both on a response and continued work on the climate file, but also from an equity and inclusion perspective. And, and that is really uh, front and center for cities and communities across the country right now. 
Uh, we've been on the front lines of the pandemic working flat out to, to keep Canadians safe. Um, in Monday's fall economic statement, we really saw some encouraging signals on what's to come in the recovery plan for municipalities. You heard Minister McKenna reference some of those as well, um, as well as some welcome immediate investment to support vulnerable Canadians, including those experiencing homelessness. And I'll, I'll just point out in particular um, the additional funding of, of close to $300 million for the Reaching Home Strategy, which is a proven community-based way to support Canadians with, with no home of their own. I want to sort of make two premise points, and I, I know that we'll have an opportunity to get into the details of, of the Canadian context and the infrastructure spend um, going forward. I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't start and, and really early insert into the conversation here um, that our municipal ability to, to really advance a recovery, to really help drive a green and inclusive recovery, uh, is going to hinge on our financial viability. And we saw that in the first wave of the pandemic, municipalities were, were pushed to the brink of a financial crisis. Um, the government responded through the safe uh, restart agreements, the federal government transferred to the provinces uh, a, a pile of money to help uh, in this regard. And it really did stem the bleeding. It, it, the challenge is it's time limited. Um, and so as we go into a second wave, um, the the first tranche is now uh, drive, has been riding through this and we're, we're at a place as well where municipalities are going to, uh, again, having to be looking at their 2021 budget cycle, which is happening now, starting to contemplate uh, a real uh, potential necessity city to pull back on some of the essential services, uh, as well as some of the, the major projects that are going to drive an economic recovery going forward and drive uh, our work on climate, drive our work on, on inclusion. And so really, I'll say we need first and foremost to see some timely action again from the federal and provincial governments um, to work with cities in that regard. Uh, the other piece I'll say is really uh, a highlight on the green recovery here. You know, the minister spoke at length about this uh, and the government through the economic statement really opened the door to driving a green sustainable recovery and municipalities are our core to that, um, including uh, both the, the infrastructure and transit and natural infrastructure, um, and also including on some of the important uh, natural infrastructure commitments, including uh, the planting 2 billion trees going forward. Uh, and so we really, you know, I think cities and communities are, are keen to see that as a priority, see that as, uh, as a reason to be optimistic. Um, and so we're really Really looking for some next steps on public transit, um, on continuing to help electrify the transit systems going forward, uh, and then some additional uh, work together and partnership on tackling the climate challenge, including action on mitigation, on local solutions to achieve net zero. Um, at the tail end of that last panel, I'll wrap here, Elena, was, you know, we heard about the importance of, of an energy transition. And um, I'll just say that this is certainly an active dialogue with cities and, and communities and folks are, are really on board with wanting to get there. Um, but we've got to do it in a way that also recognizes that we need to support uh, some communities whose economies are reliant on, on these current energy systems um, to engage in this kind of a transition. And so I just wanted to highlight that because it's often uh, missing in the conversation about the very important and very necessary transition to a green, green economy. Thanks for those um, starting uh, premises there, Carol. I think we'll have a lot of, a lot to dig into when, when we talk about you know spending priorities next. Um, Craig, building on those points of urgency and scale that Carol opened with, can you tell us what the current context is like when it comes to issues like resiliency and nature-based solutions and infrastructure? Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks, Elena. Um, yeah, and it, it's a pleasure to be here. Again, thanks to Canada 2020. 
we, um, you know, uh, you know, being with the insurance industry, you know, a lot of people think 2020, uh, obviously, it has been a terrible year, but it's been a terrible decade uh, on the insurance front, uh, mostly because of property losses driven by escalating uh, climate events, uh, like wildfires and floods. And, uh, you know, and, and, you know, after this pandemic, uh, we're going to have more wildfires and floods. It's just we're just going to have more and more. And so, so one of the things we've been thinking about is, you know, governments on their own, municipal governments are cash strapped, uh, are going to be cash strapped coming out of the pandemic. Um, you know, governments can't do this alone. Ideally, we would be bringing private sector capital to play uh, to address these, you know, these solutions to making Canada more resilient, to be, you know, investing in resilient infrastructure. But we've actually got a, a key barrier to that. Um, you know, if, if we want to leverage the Canada Infrastructure Bank to invest in resilient infrastructure, um, you know, we need to figure out how to make those investments generate revenue. And pricing climate risk mitigation is difficult, whether we're, you know, improving stormwater drainage or introducing flood retention or diversion facilities. We're challenged to properly price that resilience value and then capture that in terms of a, a return on investment that can then be provided back to investors. Um, this is a global problem. It's not just, you know, something we're experiencing here in Canada. And, you know, the minister mentioned natural infrastructure. You know, if, uh, you know, um, wetlands, sand dunes, you know, in the U.S., mangroves, saltwater marshes, these do have uh, an intrinsic value uh, when it comes to resilience, but we're also challenged to quantify what that resilience is. Um, part of it's a data problem. Uh, the way uh, flood models used by insurers to underwrite risk aren't refined enough to capture uh, those infrastructure upgrades when they occur. Um, but another factor is, you know, clearly how to make those resilience investments pay. How do how does it translate cost avoidance into, into some sort of paying vehicle? Now, the Biden plan um, actually commits uh, to working with insurers to address some of this. So uh, they want to lower property insurance. They want to make sure that they're going to, to all of these climate resilient investments that they're going to make and that they're committing to, that they are going to see, uh, you know, benefits in terms of lower property insurance premiums for homeowners and communities. And what they're looking at is to expand uh, a program that uh, it's called the community rating system that they have uh, that, uh, that's basically that FEMA uses. Um, and what it does is it does a calculation of, the, you know, the resilient upgrade uh, that's made through such investments and, and provides a, a value on a community by community basis. We have nothing like that in Canada. We don't have a community rating system. So, so you know, watching as they, you know, they've made a commitment to expand upon it, improve upon it. We should be watching that closely. We should be taking a look at it, uh, look what the Biden administration does with it and figure out how can we transfer that, uh, that innovation uh, to the Canadian context. Thanks. Thanks for that, Stuart. I think that theme of data gaps of, you know, total lack of understanding or lack of, say, digital twins that they have in other jurisdictions matter a great deal, especially as we're looking forward and picking up on your point about the importance of collaborating um, with with the private sector. Jacob, tell us, I know Alex mentioned at the top, just released a report on broadband gaps for rural communities, for Indigenous communities, and I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that, that um, you know, you'll be able to speak to that report to help us understand the current state on what it looks like um, in terms of broadband services connectivity in Canada. Sure. Thanks so much for the question. And thanks uh, for, for everyone for participating in the panel and for Canada 2020 for hosting as well. Um, you know, when you think about how critical many of the infrastructure and public policy priorities that have already been articulated are, and how so many of them require advanced connectivity. You can see why investments in broadband networks now aren't simply 
something to be thought of in the context of a nice to have or a separate policy discussion, but deeply inform all of our public policy, including our conversation about infrastructure. And in fact, telecommunications infrastructure is infrastructure. And it, you know, we really learned that um, very acutely that day in March when we all went home on a Friday and we were told we weren't coming back into work on the Monday. And all of us on that Monday turned our computers on at home and they worked. And those of us who have office jobs and those of us who could continue to work still were able to participate in the Canadian economy, still uh, able to drive uh, growth and innovation, even in a very challenged environment. In an environment where broadband usage spiked so tremendously, it was like the Super Bowl of or Mother's Day of, of internet traffic levels every single day. Um, and that is a, that's not an accident that those broadband networks were so res resilient across the country. It is a function of the literally hundreds of billions of dollars of investment that private sector companies have put into those networks over time, notwithstanding the fact that Canada is uh, the most expensive country to build broadband networks in in the G7 with the highest spectrum costs anywhere in the world. And so what you need to think about in how we can make broadband available and how we can make access to broadband even more equally available in our rural and remote areas, we have to think about the proper policy vehicles that will enable that. So we can go into that in some depth, but you know, the short version is what the government has done on UBF is a good first start because it prioritizes uh, areas that are uneconomical otherwise to reach. And it um, allows companies, especially through the rapid response funds, to get applications in quickly. But for it to be successful, it has to coordinate with municipal funding vehicles and provincial funding vehicles. And it also has to align with the way the private sector itself makes funding decisions that are outcome driven i.e. the number of homes passed, the number of new connections made. And so in order for any policy vehicle, including the Universal Broadband Fund, to be successful, it has to ac accommodate for those things. The other thing that we're going to have to do in order to drive broadband and thus see the productivity gains, the environmental gains, the health gains, the social gains, the economic uh, and educational gains spread equally, not just in our dense urban centers, but to our rural and remote communities, is we also have to unlock all sorts of fallow spectrum. So um, spectrum is the, um, the unseen highways on which data travels wirelessly. And there are many places in Canada, because of the way Spectrum has been allocated previously, that Spectrum is being held by companies who simply don't use it. And if that Spectrum was put to use, the companies who have already deployed broadband networks in some of those places wirelessly could double or triple, or in our case, quadruple, the speeds that we provide to rural communities with the flip of a switch. So that's just the starting point of how to think about broadband in the context of broader economic development and broader economic opportunity and equality for rural and remote Canadians. And interestingly, and this goes back to what our panel was talking about previously, the US is actually ahead of Canada significantly on this. 
The U.S. is rolling out Spectrum at a much faster rate than Canada is, which means that there will be literally tens of billions of dollars of productivity advantages that the U.S. has over Canada in the rollout of next generation networks. You know, and you've already seen that today in the advertising that some of those U.S. cell phone companies put out there. So this is this is some of these are some of the conversations that we need to think about going to Carl's point about yeah. the the policy vehicles that are required mm -hmm. in thinking about how to enable equal access to formative infrastructure. I think I think those are really important um, points of, of departure, and you've certainly painted a vivid portrait um, about infrastructure and infrastructure needs. Craig, I'd like to flip back to you, and I, I want to zero in on spending priorities. And I know everyone must have a laundry list of what spending priorities could be. And but one of the things we heard Jacob talk about, you know, was was really um, you know the the importance of, of pushing out, building out, and ensuring that um, you know, when infrastructure is stressed, that it can respond. But you'll know better than anyone that assuring against the 1% is not always practical. It's not always feasible. So, so what are your spending priorities when it comes to green infrastructure and disaster mitigation? How do we connect those dots? Yeah, thanks, Elena. The, um, and this is, an, this is an easy one. And, I, and I'm going to uh, reference uh, Dr. Gordon McBean's question in the Q's and A's, uh, where he, he talks about the importance of investing in resilient infrastructure. So look, you know, the Honorable Christian Freeland, uh, as Minister of Finance, just tabled uh, her first fall economic statement this week. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, there was a glaring omission. I know it probably pained Minister McKenna, too, uh, for a government uh, that's committed to building back better. And, and that was the Disaster Mitigation and Adaptation Fund. So, so that was a $2 billion fund that was announced back in 2017, wildly successful, single greatest funder of resilient infrastructure uh, in this country. Uh, the case example that Minister McKenna talked about with Minister Hussain, um, you know, about the came from that fund, that, that announcement that was made this past week. Um, and it's overcommitted, uh, it's totally overcommitted, and it's overcommitted because uh, it creates thousands and thousands of jobs while uh, investing in infrastructure that makes Canadians and their communities more resilient. Um, now, Minister Freeland did signal that $100 billion will flow to drive post-pandemic economic recovery. Uh, and, you know, if there was one big single thing uh, that the government could invest in, it is to make the DMAF part of that, uh, that recovery. Um, so a, an expanded DMAF, a much more ambitious sized DMAF, Disaster Mitigation and Adaptation Fund, uh, should be announced in the upcoming federal budget. In fact, we fully expect that it will be. Um, and the threshold of that fund, speaking to the minister's point, um, at the same time, it needs to be reduced. So it's set at $20 million. So only the big cities can play in it right now for the most part. Set way too high. Should be lowered. We're talking about inclusivity. Should be lowered to a million dollars max uh, so that those smaller, more vulnerable communities uh, across the country uh, can can play, uh, can, can, can access it. Uh, and its eligibility uh, needs to also be shifted. Uh, so that it can accommodate uh, nature-based uh, investments, uh, which which yeah, tremendous return on investment value, uh, as I think we're all learning. Uh, so so that would be my plug as far as one single thing that would be on our wish list. No, that that sounds great, and you know the the focus on on actually bringing it down to the ground. Oftentimes they are whether they're municipalities, organizations, whatever they may be, they tend to know, right, what's needed, what's best. Um, so, so that's certainly well heard, making sure that it's accessible on that front. Um, Jacob, if, if you had a priority that you wanted funded, um, you know, soft infrastructure, network infrastructure, tech infrastructure, tell us about that. I actually think that the key is not what 
money the government is putting in, but rather the policy vehicles that the government puts around in order to properly incent the right priorities from the private sector. So we heard it previously in the panel before us that the private sector ultimately is going to um, mobilize much more capital than the government will, even in these times. And so, yes, the government is important and an important partner, especially in bridging the gap on uh, certain kinds of rural and remote broadband investments. But actually, it, prioritizing rural and remote investments through capital cost allowance so that rural and remote areas get 5G networks fa as fast or faster than urban centers is just as smart, if not smarter policy in terms of changing incentives. Use it or lose it spectrum rules so that companies can't sit on spectrum depriving rural Canadians of the benefits of high-speed broadband is much more important for getting fast internet to Canadians today. So these kinds of very simple policy priorities or policy vehicles can actually change private sector priorities uh, in a way that government spending initiatives might not be able to do. I think that's an excellent point, Jacob. Couldn't agree more on the question of incentives and actually setting up the incentives so that the rest of the actors in the system can respond however they best see fit. Um, Carol, over to you. On, and I'm sure that identifying a spending priority must be really tough when we're talking about cities. But if you can, just to help round out the conversation, talk to us a bit about hard infrastructure, what we traditionally think of as hard infrastructure. Sure. Thanks. Thanks, Lena. And it is hard when it comes to cities uh, to focus on one area specifically, though my fellow panelists are helping me because I agree both on the disaster mitigation and adaptation fund, uh, as well as the need to be ambitious about uh, about rural broadband access. Um, so I can leave those as, <laughs> as covered. Uh, and I'll focus where you asked me to here on uh, on the hard infrastructure aspects. You know, two weeks ago at FCM, we launched our plan for an inclusive green recovery. Uh, and some of our key recommendations really are obviously focused in, in this infrastructure space, there's perhaps no better example of our ability to drive progress on, on key national goals than through our involvement on infrastructure if we're deliberate about it. Um, it's, of course, a, a proven stimulus strategy, but it's more than that. It's always been more than about concrete or rebar. It's about getting people moving to work and school. It's about enabling people to access and enjoy nature. It's about people pe keeping people healthy, safe, active, connected. And as we're seeing, uh, and it really uh, laid bare here, it's about equity and and access and inclusivity. COVID is is really highlighting the longstanding inequities and the disproportionate impacts on Indigenous, Black, and racialized Canadians, uh, and on people experiencing homelessness and mental illness. And so maybe I'll I'll start there because it is one of our, our key infrastructure focuses. Um, it really is in the area of housing and helping prevent the flow into homelessness, helping families live in inadequate um, families who are living in inadequate or uh, overcrowded housing is, is really one of the biggest steps that governments can collectively take to reduce inequality in our cities and communities. You know, we have 27,000 that we know of, and so the number is bigger, uh, Canadians that are estimated to be chronically homeless and 35,000 estimated to be homeless on any given night. And so earlier in the fall, we made a strong push for federal support for municipalities and community housing providers to take opportunities presented by the sales of hotel, motels, apartment blocks to convert them into deeply affordable and supportive housing. 
the government, the federal government responded directly uh, and worked with us uh, to create and then launch the new $1 billion rapid housing initiative, which will really urgently help some of the most vulnerable in our cities and communities. And so one of our biggest uh, asks really is, is to urgently scale up these kinds of investments and to, to ward our shared goal of ending chronic homelessness um, and to make uh, housing more affordable uh, for, for Canadians overall. Beyond housing, we can also use infrastructure to foster a more inclusive recovery by investing in social and community infrastructure. So senior centers, rec centers, libraries, uh, and we're working to with our partners uh, in other governments and across the board really to scale up the work that we're doing this. Yeah. The other area really is, uh, again, in the area of climate uh, space, we're really aligned with the federal government on the need to build back in a greener and more sustainable way. Uh, cities and communities influence half of all emissions in Canada. Uh, and so scaling up local action is really key to achieving net zero emissions. And we have before us in, in the kind of recovery and investment opportunity that we'll see a really generational opportunity uh, to protect, protect Canadians from inevitable effects of climate change uh, while setting Canada on a path to a clear path to achieving a net zero uh, emissions economy by 2050. And so uh, we want to see real investments toward that. One of the main ways to do that is through expanding our public transit system. Uh, systems which you know have been hit hard and will continue to be hit hard uh, by this pandemic and they are the backbone of livable competitive cities and and bar none one of the best ways um, from an infrastructure perspective to to meet our climate goals uh, and we know you know we heard in the previous panel the triple bottom line pieces we know that for every billion dollars we invest in transit we generate up to three billion in economic growth um, and so really looking to the federal government to launch that that promised uh, per a transit fund to accelerate the adoption of, of zero emission transit vehicles across Canada um, and go forward from there. And, and I know you asked me to focus on, on hard infrastructure, um, but I, I can't not leave this point unsaid that, you know, hard infrastructure is, is necessary. Um, but for this to really move the markers we're talking about, so too are the necessary social supports um, so that our communities can really then be built um, and designed in ways that are uh, inclusive, not only only focused on the privileged, um, but rather on principles that create vibrancy, quality of life for everyone. And so um, really necessary to, to bring that part of the equation into our thinking and forward thinking on hard infrastructure as well. Thanks for that, Carol. I think it um, really puts into perspective that practical element of infrastructure, right? In some ways, you almost feel it. Like, you know, if there's a housing shortage, you know, when yeah. trains are on time. And and I think that idea of almost individual measurement, right, or individual perception um, helps to launch us um, in, into this, this next theme that I was hoping we could get to about how you actually know when infrastructure investments um, are successful. And, and before, Jacob, I ask you um, to speak to us about, um, you know, success in, in service level, levels and, and in terms of broadband access, I will kindly remind um, all of our participants, all of our guests to um, submit your uh, questions through the Q&A function. So we can do our best, um, uh, depending on timing, to, to get to some of those. Jacob, over to you. Sure. Thanks very much. Um, you know, when you think about the way that government is measuring success in infrastructure, what I would encourage government to do in this context is to think about it through the lens that the same private sector companies that they're asking to partner with or that are investing in these areas are themselves thinking about it. And when we tell us think about the 
investments, the transformational investments we're making in broadband all across the country, we're really thinking about only a few business outcomes. We're thinking about the speed that we can deliver and the quality of network that we can deliver. And those are the things that over time we have consistently delivered on. If you look at TELUS has been ranked as literally the world's fastest mobile network. And when we're delivering wired networks, we are deliver when we're building those networks, we're building them at, it, we know when we're building in rural Quebec or rural Alberta and BC, we're building fiber that gives people the same speeds as downtown Seoul or downtown Vancouver or downtown Paris, right? So number one, we're thinking about, in our case, the speed, the quality. Number two is the number of homes passed we, or the number of residences connected and businesses connected. So we want to maximize for our dollars spent the number of businesses that we can connect. When you think about the way that many federal programs have been structured previously, they're structured on how many miles of cable did you lay and how many D-slams did you install? That's a technical term. Anyway, how, how many like technical widgets did you put in, right? And that's uh, that's how they're structuring their application process. That's how they're structuring their uh, uh, their guides. That's how they're structuring their measurements and their reimbursements. And all of that is not how we plan and structure our business. And it's not how I don't think any private sector entity does. We're structuring our business based on a return on invested capital. And that is only derived from the number of businesses that we connect at the fastest speeds possible. And so I would encourage government to have a very simple measurement of success that is derived from a private sector mode of thinking in that context. I think that's a a very well-heard point, right? Actually flipping the entire model on its head and actually being worried about the result, the outcome versus the inputs that are going into the system. Because certainly, you know, from the consumer side of things, when we're in, you know, flying only communities in Quebec, you know, firsthand, I'm the first person to say seeing, you know, the bars pop up on my phone mean a great deal. And I can only imagine from a service perspective what that means too. I'll just say that there are communities in rural Quebec that we have connected that are only accessible via boat or snowmobile or helicopter. I've been there. Yes. And, and they now they now have service that is faster mm-hmm. than most major metropolitan centers in the US. Mm-hmm. Yep, talk about outcomes there. That that's certainly um helpful. Um Carol, you know, zeroing in again on on cities, can you tell us, you know, who's demonstrating success? And I would really um love to have you highlight a few city examples if, if you can, but places that are working well and that are, are measuring in, in such an effective way. You know, I, I'll get into the, the sort of municipal examples in a moment. And I'll just say that, you know, while I think it's very important for governments at all levels to be very aware of, of the metrics that the private sector are using, I think um, really fundamentally the the one measure of success for the government needs to be, are we making the lives of all Canadians better? Uh, and I think infrastructure uh, is is one of the key ways to drive progress to, to that end. So at a municipal level, um, you know, municipalities are used to balancing short, medium, and long-term considerations to being accountable, not just to the individual residents, but also, you know, local stakeholders, whether it's uh, your, your citizens or the Chamber of Commerce or environmental and community groups. Um, and really the sort of social, environmental, and economic lenses on infrastructure are necessarily so then built into the way that municipalities 
do do business um, across the board. Um, and so this might be a bit of a, a cheeky answer, but I think it's it's worth highlighting as well that one of the best ways to maximize infrastructure investments and to ensure that we're measuring the right things and tracking the right things and planning for the right kind of outputs is to have local leaders at the table when that those systems are being designed. Uh, again, bringing that very critical perspective. We've seen it work when that's happened, and we've seen it uh, not work where that, that kind of collaboration isn't happening. And so I'll highlight for you a few examples um, that actually bring a number of municipalities together. Um, and it show, it's a great example on uh, measurement and, and collaboration at a federal and municipal level. Um, and I'll start by talking about a municipal climate innovation program that we run uh, in partnership with Infrastructure Canada. Uh, and we help really build uh, capacity through programming in this, in this area. Um, it's a invested over $50 million to support uh, climate action, which includes, you know, 300 municipal climate uh, projects, but 900 training events uh, and 900 sessions geared towards uh, exactly this. How are we uh, planning? How are we tracking? How are we measuring? And those, those kinds of activities and that kind of capacity building really helps municipalities shift the infrastructure planning um, and reduce GHG emissions and adapt to, to climate change. A good example of that is the rural municipality of Springfield in Manitoba, uh, which has long been concerned with the security and availability of its groundwater, uh, which it relies on to meet all of its domestic, commercial, and industrial water needs. And with support of this program, the, the town of Springfield completed a planning exercise to help keep its water system sustainable, clean, and safe for consumption. I mean, that's a very particular example in a rural context, and there are many in, in, this, in the city's context. Um, and I would say that in the rural context as well, it's important to, to really be serious about building that capacity for municipalities. Again, the federal government has stepped up and, and really partnered with the FCM on this through an asset management program uh, that, again, has helped over 600 uh, municipal asset management projects improve their infrastructure decision-making processes. This is help that's targeted to uh, some of Canada's really smallest municipalities um, to help build their capacity to better assess the state of infrastructure projects and plan for the future. So really, I mean, tailoring and understanding where it is that we need to target some capacity building support. Um, how do we share best practices? How are we leveraging and building communities of knowledge in the space at a local level, I think are, are key to the key to the answer. And uh, and certainly the federal government has been has been working quite closely on, on that regard, which is which is good news. Thanks for that, Carol. So, I mean, you, you certainly brought us back to to Grand Zero when it comes to the role of the state and, and making lives better, but also recognizing, too, that it's not only sometimes, or it's more than straight investment or dollar investment in assets. It's actually about training and about a much longer-term strategy to help recognize what success looks like um, over um, over the medium and long terms. Um, Craig, I'll give you what, what I think is a very difficult question, mainly because I'm really quite curious. Um, if, if you were to measure or quantify resiliency, right, if we're talking about infrastructure resiliency, disaster mitigation uh, capacity, how do you do that? So there's two ways to answer that, uh, that question. Uh, I'm going to start with the, the sort of more technical, very uh, direct way uh, of how you, you measure it. I said in my earlier comments that it's difficult to measure physical risk. Uh, is difficult. Uh, we know how to do it. Uh, it's just it's just difficult because of the, the data issue. So the easiest way to quantify resiliency is to model averted losses. So the insurance industry prices risk when they set your premiums. They do that by generating average annual loss figures 
based on the location of the property, its exposure to a particular peril, uh, the value of the property, and and uh, the contents uh, that it uh, it contains or the services that it provides. So if we model a disaster event, let's say a one in a hundred year flood uh, against a community, insurers could then estimate that the losses that they will incur against their book of business. Uh, we can therefore model how those average annual losses would change if flood defenses were put in place. Um, and, uh, and when you take those averted loss numbers, uh, then, then you can actually come up with a resiliency value that you then tie to whether it be gray or green or natural infrastructure. Um, by aggregating these for any community protected by these defenses, we can then quantify the resiliency value in advance, in advance and then model them over time. So the classic example is the Red River floodway that protects Winnipeg. Uh, it was built back in the 1960s at a value of, I think, $60 million, but has yielded over $40 billion in averted losses ever since. But, but on a broader way, the way to answer your question is, um, you know, we need targets. Um, this country, uh, you know, we, we've talked about 2030 targets in terms of carbon reduction. We're now talking about net zero by 2050. Um, so we do have targets on the mitigation side, on the, the climate mitigation side. We don't have them for the climate resiliency side. Um, you know, we should have national targets, which would then focus spending, uh, you know, and could be framed in terms of in, in terms of inclusivity, um, such as, you know, we've got about a million uh, properties uh, in this country exposed to flood. So homeowners, residential flood properties, those are going to, as this becomes disclosed, these will affect the values of those properties. Um, and they can't, and, and, and we have to be careful because if they can't get insurance, they can't transfer that risk and the value of those properties are going to go down. This is why um, yeah, Minister Blair announced two weeks ago uh, a task force on high-risk residential flood insurance to make sure that every Canadian uh, can get some sort of flood insurance irrespective of risk. But if we had those targets, you know, there's a million of those properties and we could say by 2030, we're going to mitigate, you know, half of them. Uh, you know, if we had some sort of target, uh, then, then you could be quantifying, you'd have a different measure. You'd be able to quantify at a national scale, drive action, uh, and then, and then determine also the value of this programming, such as uh, MSIP or DMAF, um, you know, in terms of meeting that goal. So, so that's the second way that I answer the question. Thanks. And, and, and I appreciate certainly the data gaps and the challenges there. But I think it's so helpful to, to hear it laid out, right, that there are options and then that these things simply have to be done. Um, it, it's been a fantastic conversation. Uh, you folks certainly have much, much more to say. I'm in the interest of time. I'm going to try to conclude and take audience questions at the same time. Um, so there, there have been a few questions that have touched on the issue of coordination and other questions that have touched on the link of um, how government, government and, and business can connect. So here's what I'm proposing. Um, Carol and Craig, I would um, appreciate as a summary, if you can each comment, and, and Carol, we'll start with you, on on how collaborations can be done effectively on, you know, those spending areas that you've highlighted, those challenges, Craig, that you've highlighted between orders of government. And then, Jacob, your question will actually um, be how, you know, can governments better align, um, you know, criteria for, for policy objectives with business objectives? You know, what do they need to do there? So, Carol, we'll start with you and then um, we'll, we'll uh, head over to Craig. 
Hey, thanks very much. Uh, this, I mean, you, you've really named what is the question that I think is key for us collectively as a country to advance our game in if we're going to be able to be as successful um, and meet the ambitions that have been stated around the kind of recovery that we want to have. It's going to require collaborating in a very different way, in a very tangible way. Um, and that's going to need to look a lot different. I mean, currently in a number of areas, we see conversations um, that are fractured because they aren't being had by orders of government collectively uh, at the same table. They're happening in silos. There are different perspectives coming forward and, and there really isn't um, an ability uh, to, to do that or, or really hasn't been the will to do that because there is an ability and it's quite simple, in fact. And we started to see some progress on this front. You know, and again, I'll highlight the, the um, rapid housing initiative where we worked quite uh, differently with the federal government through CMHC uh, to be able to, to have very direct conversations from a city's level with the federal government to say, all right, where is the need across the country right now? If we're going to acutely try to target some resources to pull people off the streets in the midst of the pandemic, how are we going to get the best bang for the buck? And we were able, able to have a very tangible conversation about that, to share information, uh, to agree on what that should look like. And the results uh, are a program that are gonna, is going to be able to move fast. Uh, and a program that's going to deliver the kind of outcomes in a targeted way. And that is both a model that needs to be scaled in the housing context, even in that own program, um, but really across across the board. Uh, you know, I was just in, uh, previous to coming to join you on this panel, um, a conversation that FCM pulled together in the context of our urban project, which was set up to try to create a venue that was across governments, but also brought in the private sector, also brought in academia, also brought in civil society to say, we all have levers to bring to bear on, on some of the biggest national challenges. We need to be talking to each other and let's try to do that. And one of the key takeaways every time we have one of these conversations, regardless of the issue we're talking about, is that we need to do this more, that there needs to be a formal way to engage, that we need to move past what are red herrings around, you know, whether or not constitutionally we're allowed to talk to each other, which is just so silly, um, to being able to just say, you know, the challenge and, and the scale of the problem um, and the scale of our ambition gives us collectively the imperative to do better and to work together. And Canadians uh, demand that of us. And so I think Thank across you. the board, a real refreshed approach to collaboration is required. Fantastic. Thank you for that, um, Carol. I'm getting the, the time flag waved at me. Um, so, so Craig and Jacob, we'll, we'll do our best to keep this, uh, to keep this distinct. Just so really quickly, I'll, I'll echo what uh, Carol said. Um, we need to be able to break down those barriers, stop loving the problems and focusing very, uh, you know, directly on the solutions um, you know, we've got, uh, as an example, we have a, uh, we've been working in partnership with municipalities to rebuild trust over the past three years um, around, you know, what happens when they make those infrastructure investments, how are those going to be factored into uh, decisions, uh, modeling of premiums, exactly what we covered today. Uh, we've been collaborating through this entity called Canadian Water Network focused at the University of Waterloo with, uh, with the, some of the, the largest municipalities across the country and then together with FCM to answer these direct questions. We're only going to get there. I mean, in our view, municipalities are on the front line. So that's that's where we're, we're, we're focusing more and more and more um, and, uh, and and building uh, building those collaborations at the ground level. Wonderful. Thank you both. So the importance of breaking down those barriers and making sure that orders are all engaging and, and civil society is engaged in some instances as well. Jacob, you, um, you get the last response today. 
Thanks very much. And thanks again uh, for being a terrific moderator for this panel and for Canada 2020 for hosting us today and for really thoughtful engagements from uh, my other panelists. Um, you know, thinking about your question was how can we align government criteria with business objectives? Now, this is a question that could have a master's thesis of itself, and I only have about 90 seconds. So I'll say, you know, the short answer is government needs to think about in its decision-making, what are some of the unintended consequences of its decisions that can inadvertently stifle or retard the very thing that it is trying to achieve? And so we talked earlier about how government spectrum policy today is inhibiting the ability of companies to invest and deploy broadband in rural and remote communities today, where literally the speeds available to Canadians could be quadrupled if there were use it or lose it criteria on spectrum that was deployed today, much less spectrum that is going to be deployed in the future. So that's a very simple thing that government can do to make sure that it aligns what it's trying to achieve on a public policy basis with how private sector actors are going to react in the market in their behavior. So if they're going to sit on spectrum, as an example, there needs to be policy mechanisms to stop that to the benefit of rural Canadians. Wonderful. And on that note, Jacob, thank you very much. Thank you to our panelists and to our participants. I think it's been a fantastic conversation that's um, given quite a bit of, um, quite a few reflections on unintended consequences on the need for meaningful coordination and collaboration and certainly too for focusing on results or what's in the best interests of Canadians when it comes to getting infrastructure spend right. So with that, thank you to our hosts at Canada 2020 who always put on um, great conversations and, and we look forward to hearing more of these going forward. Have a wonderful afternoon. Thanks, Thank you. Thank you.